Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 11. <clears throat> Revelation, chapter 11, and verse 3. And I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days, clothed in sackcloth. And our subject this evening is the two witnesses. Well, we continue in our series in the book of Revelation. We had a, a short break last week. But uh, I won't recap at great length, but just to remind you that we are in the third cycle, the third view of the gospel age. There are seven views of the gospel age in this book, and uh, we've looked at the seven churches, and then we had the seven seals, and now we are at the seven trumpets. And uh, at this stage, we've... Uh, heard the seven, uh, the six trumpets, rather, have been sounded, not the seventh. And uh, so far, these uh, trumpets have been trumpets of warning. That is what they mean. That is what they signify. And uh, they have taught us that even though uh, in this uh, fallen world we will have famine and war and drought, and these things will be common to us, commonplace. Death will be commonplace. Nevertheless, there will from time to time be warnings. Great calamities, great disasters, great plagues that are unusual. And these are warnings to make the world sit up and take notice. Yes, there are terrible things in the world generally, day by day. But every so often there will be these trumpets, these warnings throughout history, so that people will be reminded that there will one day be a great judgment and uh, the great trump shall sound and the Lord Jesus Christ will appear. But uh, we also noted in uh, the sounding of the six trumpets that toward the very end of time, just before the Lord Jesus Christ returns, there will be a time of great immorality, a conspicuously evil age, a time that is, uh, well, characterized by desperate gloom. This world will be a very unhappy and miserable place. Men will seek after death and yet will not find it. And uh, there will be a terrible malaise over the world and great wars, we noted. But even despite all of these things, people will not repent. Even though they see the wickedness of the world, they will not turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then chapter 10, well, we, uh, uh, we were met with this angel with a little book, had in his hand a little book open in verse 2 of chapter 10. And uh, the Apostle John, remember, he had to eat the book, and it was both sweet and bitter. And that spoke to us of the nature of the gospel. The gospel is so sweet to us because it speaks of mercy and forgiveness and grace and everlasting life. It's sweet to every believer, but at the same time, it's bitter. 
because of the difficulty it can bring, because of the persecution it brings upon us. And, uh, well, even our own weaknesses, our own battles against sin, we have to fight against the temptation of the world. We were never troubled as unsaved people, but now that we are saved, well, it's difficult. It's a battle each and every day. It is sweet and bitter, but it's also bitter in the sense that uh, so many people whom we love and whom we know, well, they reject God. When we share the gospel with them, they turn away from it. That's bitter to us. We don't want that. We don't desire that. And this is uh, really the case with John in this vision. And uh, it was the case with so many of the prophets in the Old Testament particularly. They had great woe and misery upon their hearts. They were burdened because when they preached the gospel, no one would turn. And that's why the gospel, it was sweet, but it was also bitter. And uh, really, that's where we left off. The Apostle John, well, he has to pronounce judgments, further judgments in this book because of the world's unbelief. And this is hard for him, but he must do it. Verse 11, And he, the angel, said unto me at the end of chapter 10, Thou must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. But then let's enter into chapter 11, because this first part of the chapter will be our focus. And the Apostle John is asked to measure something at the beginning of chapter 11. And there was given me a reed like unto a rod. And the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. But the court which is without the temple leave out and measure it not, for it is given unto the Gentiles, and the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. Now, of course, uh, we remember that uh, the book of Revelation is a vision full of symbols. But uh, this particular symbol was based on something real or identifiable. In fact, something very familiar to John. And what is being represented here is the temple in Jerusalem. Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. This is uh, uh, representing the temple of Jerusalem, the uh, Jewish temple during the time of Christ, Herod's temple, uh, that which was in the holy city. The holy city is mentioned in verse 2, and that's another name for Jerusalem. That's how it was known. In fact, uh, Jerusalem is still known as the holy city. So in this vision, this is what John is seeing, the Jewish temple as it existed on earth during the time of Christ. But John is told only to measure a part of it. Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein, but the court which is without the temple leave out. John only measures one part of the temple. And the part that he measures is the most holy part, the sanctuary, the uh, part of the temple 
where the altar is, and them that worship therein, the altar, of course, was in the most holy place. This was the uh, precious place of the temple of God, and only that is to be measured. But the court which is without the temple, leave out. The uh, temple in Jerusalem had an outer court which was for Gentiles, and that was not to be measured. Yes, there were other parts of the temple, but only this outer court is mentioned here because of the later significance which I will add. But the court that was without, it was associated with the temple, but it was the Gentiles' court. That was not to be measured, and neither was the, uh, the holy city extending even further. The holy city was not to be measured. Jerusalem. And so, uh, uh, well, we read, in fact, that uh, the outer court and uh, the holy city of Jerusalem, not only were they not to be measured, but they would be uh, given over unto the Gentiles, unto the heathen. They would be trodden underfoot forty and two months. The court and the city of Jerusalem, well, they would surrender to the Gentiles. And uh, there's that period of forty and two months, which we'll look at a bit later. But well, what does all this mean? It seems very confusing. The measuring of the sanctuary and all this stuff about the Gentiles and the the outer court and uh, the holy city being trodden underfoot. What does all of this mean? Well, the sanctuary, the part that is being measured, it symbolizes something. It symbolizes very simply the true church. The true church. Measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. Measure that. The true church is measured. The true church, of course, is numbered. The true church is sealed. It's known to God. Just measure that. Not the other parts, not the outer parts, the Gentiles and so on. Just measure the true church, the holy place, those who are in the kingdom, those who are truly mine. Measure them. Number them. And of course, the church is often mentioned in the New Testament particularly as the temple of God. We uh, uh, mentioned Ephesians uh, in our teaching service on the Lord's, Lord's Day evening. Ephesians 2.21 In whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto a holy temple in the Lord. A holy temple, that's the church. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the words of the Apostle Paul in verses 16 and 17, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God? He's speaking to believers. You are the temple of God. And then in verse 17, For the temple of God is holy. Which temple ye are? You are the temple of God. That's the true church. We are the church of God. And well, I mentioned this uh, in our membership uh, classes just recently. I was stressing the fact that the members of the church, we are the church. The church is not the building. 
The church is not the congregation because there are unsaved people in the congregation. The church, they are the members, those who are truly born again, those who have joined themselves one to another. They are the church. So uh, these things all uh, lend themselves to that which is being presented to us here. Rise and measure the temple of God. That is, the true church, the elect, they are the ones who are measured and numbered. But the rest, the Gentile court, the court that is without, and the whole city of Jerusalem, they represent false Christianity. They represent nominal Christianity. In some ways, they are associated with the church, with the temple, but they are not actually the temple of God. Jerusalem and uh, the outer court, nominal Christianity. And there is a distinction in the ways in which they represent uh, this uh, nominalism. Jerusalem stands specifically for uh, what is known as Christendom. Christendom, which really is a, it's a superficial, a surface level Christianity, traditional Christianity, or ceremonial Christianity. These would include uh, people perhaps who uh, find it very important to be married in a Christian way, or to have a Christian funeral, or they want their children to be christened, or uh, if they were taking part in a census, in a census, they would uh, uh, tick the box that says they are Christian. But they don't actually know anything about Christian things. They don't know what the Bible teaches. They don't know anything about the Lord Jesus Christ. There are many people like that, even in this country. This society thinks it's a Christian country, but it's not. Of course it isn't. It's just superficial Christianity. And that's what Jerusalem would represent in this passage. And then, well, you get the outer court, the Gentiles' court. Now, that's a bit closer to the church, to the temple of God, but it's still not quite there. This category would include perhaps those who are churchgoers. They attend church regularly, perhaps. They know all the doctrines. They know what the Bible says and teaches and they uh, say all the right things and they do all the right things to make them look as though they are true believers, but they're not. They're not born again. They're unregenerate. They're still in the world and they are worldly and uh, they have no real love for Christ. So such as these, they will not be measured. They're not measured. They're not numbered. They're not amongst God's elect. And they will be trampled upon. We read here that the Gentiles will tread them underfoot 40 and 2 months. What does that mean? Symbolically, spiritually. Well, that means that uh, these nominal believers... Well, when persecution comes and when worldly pressure comes, these nominal believers will not be able to stand. They will uh, completely collapse 
It's like the world is an invading army. And when they come to attack, all these nominals will just get carried away. They'll be trampled underfoot. They won't stand for the true faith. And, uh, well, we see that even now. It's been like that all the way throughout history. But particularly we see it now. We see the world putting so much pressure upon the church. The church has to have the same priorities as the world. The church has to have the same principles as the world and the same morality as the world. And what do we see? We see so many people caving in. All the nominal believers, all the nominal churches. Oh yes, we'll go along with it. We want to be liked by the world. Really, they're being trampled upon by the world. They won't stand. They'll get carried away with the world. But the true believers, they will stand firm. They are the ones whom the Lord has sealed. They are the ones who will stand for him. So this really is the picture that's being presented to us. John measures the temple of God, just them, but all the rest, the nominals, those who are in a sense associated, they will not be protected. They don't truly belong to the Lord. And they will surrender to the world ultimately. They will be trampled underfoot 40 and 2 months. And that's, uh, well, a very sad feature of the gospel age, but one that is very true. And we see it particularly nowadays. But then verse 3. And I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days clothed in sackcloth. Well, now we have mention here of the two witnesses. Who are the two witnesses? Well, there's much speculation. In fact, uh, one commentator I read said that there has possibly been uh, never been as much speculation about anything in the Bible uh, as there is about these two witnesses. But really, the two witnesses, they're just a continuation of that which we have just seen. And uh, really, when you look at the description of the two witnesses, well, it helps us, it gives us clues as to who they are. I will give power. God will give power. Unto my two witnesses, they will receive power from heaven. And they shall prophesy. They will preach, just like the old prophets in the Old Testament, just like the apostles. They shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days, clothed in sackcloth. Well, again, like the Old Testament prophets, preaching repentance, mourning over the unbelief, of the world. This is speaking of the Lord's people once again. This is speaking of a godly witness, a witness sent from God and of God. And really, to put it very simply, this is the witness of the church. The two witnesses, they're just another representation of the true church. It's describing how the church will bear its testimony down through the gospel age. That is what the two witnesses are. Now, some people will say, well, we can't accept 
that this is just the church. Why are there two witnesses? You have to have two. And people get very concerned with this. But there is a reason that fits in perfectly well with uh, our interpretation. The two witnesses, well, we learn in the Old Testament, particularly in the book of Deuteronomy, that you needed two witnesses. Two witnesses were necessary to uh, give competent legal testimony, to give a valid testimony. So really, when we read two witnesses here, it's speaking of how the church is a valid testimony. It's a legally valid testimony. It's speaking of the validity of the church. Appointed, anointed by God. It's a legal testimony that will be valid on the very last day when the Lord Jesus Christ judges the world. The testimony of the church will be binding, will be valid. Two witnesses, but it doesn't mean two things necessarily. It's speaking about the validity of the witness. And the church most certainly has that authority. Or we could add a New Testament example, which speaks of the missionary witness of the church. The Lord Jesus Christ in Luke 10 and verse 1, remember how he sent out his 70 disciples to witness. How did they go out? Two by two. Two witnesses. But this is the church going out. You don't have to attach undue importance to the figure two. This is representing the church and how the church will go out into the world its missionary witness will be blessed. So I will give power unto my two witnesses. This is the witness of the church, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days clothed in sackcloth. Well, now just a word about these figures that keep coming up. So we have a thousand two hundred and threescore days in verse 3. We had 40 and 2 months, 42 months in verse 2. And uh, well, actually, it doesn't take a lot of maths to realize that this is the same figure. 42 months and uh, 1,203 score days are the same figure. If uh, you take a month to be 30 days, 42 times 30 equals 1,260 days. So it's the same amount of time. And well, when we look at it this way, then it becomes to be, then it uh, becomes a little clearer in our thinking that this is the gospel age, the gospel age that is set before us. Now we can look uh, just very briefly at chapter 12 and verse 6, and this will support our uh, uh, thinking, or verse 5, this uh, will help us see that this time period is the whole of the gospel age. Uh, chapter 12 and verse 5, And she brought forth a man-child. This is the bringing into the world of Christ, who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. And the woman, the church, fled into the wilderness where she hath a place prepared of God 
that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and threescore days. It's the same number as we have in chapter 11. And uh, clearly here, most clearly here, it's speaking about the whole of the gospel age. The church in the wilderness, that's the gospel age. We are in the wilderness. This place is not our home. This world is not our home. And uh, we will be in, in the wilderness until the Lord Jesus Christ comes to take us to be with him. So there is consistency here. These are the same figures, and they speak to us of the gospel age. So the, uh, the two witnesses, speaking of the church's witness throughout the gospel age. But let's uh, move on because time is very quickly running out. Verse 4, these are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. Well, uh, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but this is a reference to uh, the book of the prophet Zechariah and chapter 4, when uh, two candlesticks, or two olive trees rather, are mentioned, uh, representing Joshua the priest, and uh, Zerubbabel, and they were two leaders who would do God's work by the power of God's Spirit. In that chapter, in Zechariah chapter 4, you have those tremendous words, not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit. That's how uh, the men of God would operate. And really this verse 4 is speaking how the same Spirit of God that was in those prophets of old, will be in the church. They will now be the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. The mantle has, as it were, been handed down to them. And uh, we see this theme continuing in uh, verses 5 and 6. And if any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. Well, that's referring to Jeremiah. And again, the, the point of this verse is that the power that was upon Jeremiah will be upon the church. Jeremiah chapter 5 verse 14, I will make my words in thy, in thy mouth fire, and this people would, and it shall devour them. It's the same wording, practically. And again, the same spirit, the same blessing that was upon Jeremiah will be upon the New Testament church. And then verse 6, we have Elijah and Moses mentioned. These have power to shut heaven, that it rain not in the days of their prophecy. That was what Elijah did. And have power over waters to turn them to blood and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. That's what Moses did. So the same power, it's the same thing, I know I'm repeating it, but the power of the prophets, the same spirit will be in the church. They will have the same authority and the power to proclaim the same judgments as did the prophets of old. But then in verse 7, we read that the testimony of the church will one day, as it were, finish. 
And when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them, and shall overcome them and kill them. Well, again, we've already spoken about this, how at the very end of time, the bottomless pit will be opened, and there will be a very conspicuously evil time that comes upon the whole world. But it will only be after the church has finished their testimony. And that time is according to the Lord, of course. If you just turn with me very briefly to uh, the Apostle Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians. Second Thessalonians, and uh, I've just point you to this because it's so relevant to help us understand that time that will come, that time when the spirit of Antichrist will be intensified. Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 2 and uh, verse 7. Second Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 7. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. The spirit of Antichrist is already in the world. Only he who now letteth or hindereth will let until he be taken out of the way. So the idea is that God is holding back the forces of evil. Yes, there is wickedness in the world, but God restrains that wickedness until one day his hand is taken out of the way, and then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan, with all power and signs and lying wonders, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they receive not the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And we could even read verse 11, And for this cause God shall send them strong delusion, that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believed not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Well, those are very solemn things, but it's the same thing that is being presented to us in the book of Revelation. There will be a time when God will take his hand of restraint off, and there will be a time of great wickedness. The beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them, against the church, and shall overcome them and kill them. Well, nothing can truly kill us as believers. We are kept, we know that. But what this is saying is that the church will, as it were, be silenced. All the forces of evil will combine, and perhaps it will be the case that there will be no gospel presence. Perhaps they will have succeeded, as they are trying to do now, to push all of the Christian education out of the schools. And perhaps they would have succeeded to uh, push out all Christian influence in society. And perhaps they would have succeeded, as they are trying to do now, to uh, make the gospel, well, not the gospel at all. You know how now they're trying to bring in these conversion therapy measures and... Uh, um, 
trying to say that the preaching of the gospel converts people and that's an evil and an immoral thing, calling people to repentance. Perhaps they will have succeeded and the gospel, well, it will be a useless thing, like a dead thing. The picture here in verse 8 particularly is that the, uh, uh, the two witnesses, the church, they're as a dead corpse. Their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city. The church may well still be in the world, but it will be like a dead body. It's useless. There's no life in it. There's no true gospel preaching. Everyone's too scared to call people to repentance and faith because the world has killed the church, as it were. That will be how it, uh, how it is in that uh, dreadful time. And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ was crucified in Jerusalem. It's still speaking about Jerusalem, but Jerusalem, or even though it looked religious and pious, and even though it professed to believe in God, well, ultimately, they're just as bad as Sodom and Egypt. Their true colors are shown. That's how it will be for all the nominal believers in this country around the world. They profess faith, but really, well, they are just as bad as the worst believers. And then verse 9, And they of the people and kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in graves. And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry and shall send gifts one to another because these two prophets tormented them that dwelt on the earth. Well, the world will rejoice when the church has lost all of its power. The world will rejoice. And uh, again, we see it even now, how the world rejoices. The more that the Christian influence is taken away, the greater the world rejoices. And uh, well, it even seems as though this unites the world. The death of the church unites the world. They rejoice over them. They make merry. They shall send gifts one to another. It's like the reverse of the gospel. The gospel message unites the Lord's people in every tribe, tongue, and nation. It brings them together. Previously, they were divided, but the gospel went out and brought them together. Now it seems to be the reverse. Now it's wickedness that is joining people together and uniting people. That's the great characteristic of this wicked age. It's wickedness and immorality. And you see that even now. The leaders of the nations of this world, they seem to love making alliances with other immoral nations. How liberal are you? Do you agree with same-sex marriage? We'll make alliances with you. Do you believe in abortion? We'll make alliances with you. We won't make alliances with countries that still believe in Christian values. 
No, they'll be the pariahs of the world. But we'll join with everyone who has a liberal agenda. That's what the world is like now. That's what they're preaching. And well, we can see all these things being played out before us. They will send gifts one to another because these two prophets tormented them that dwelt on the earth. Well, it's the same as uh, how the people rejoiced when Christ was crucified. They were rejoicing because Christ had died. But just in the same way as Christ died, well, this church, those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, they will rise again. We read this in verse 11. And after three days and a half, the spirit of life from God entered into them, and they stood upon their feet, and great fear fell upon them which saw them. Well, these things are glorious for us to understand and to see. Yes, the church will suffer great tribulation, but it will not last. Satan will not have the final triumph after three days and a half, a short time. The church will be revived. They will stand upon their feet and great fear will fall upon the unbelieving world. But dear friends, we don't have time to go into all of the details as to what happens and when this happens, but we will continue next week. But that's enough for us this evening. So many things for us to consider. And I hope that's been a simple study for us. But may the Lord bless these things to each and every one of us.